0: Psalm 65, the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of difference in your translations in that very first line. Picking up. To you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is he whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the furtherest sea. Who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might. Who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunrise shout for joy. You visit the earth because, because and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You've crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip. And the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks. And the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Now, I'm going to ask you in just a moment some initial impressions of the psalm. But, but one of the things I liked was a statement of one writer that this is like a play in three acts in verses 1 through 4 verses 1 through 4 the emphasis is people coming to the temple in praise and prayer people coming to the temple in praise and prayer in verses 5 Through eight. The emphasis here is on all men and all nations. All the world looks to God. All the world looks to God. And verses nine through thirteen describes God's blessing on the land. Now, did, did anything stand out to you in this Psalm? And just an initial reading of it, when you read over it, when you thought and reflected over it, any high points stand out to you?
1: They were all high points. There was no real negativity in it.
0: Okay. No
1: enemies, no trouble. <laughs>
0: Good point. Yeah, that is a good point. What the absence, the absence of enemies, troubles, difficulties. That, that is a good point. I really hadn't thought of it in that particular perspective. But just the, what, what is absent strikes strikes us. You know, I have found in my life, my view of a good day changes a lot. When you're young, you want something exciting. When you're old, you abandon that prospect. You're just hoping nothing too terrible happens. And, and so any day that we have where nothing terrible happens, that's a reason to give thanks. And maybe that's true in any of these psalms too. What else? Okay, it is full of praise from really the first verse praise in Zion and the first word actually in Hebrew is to you it's directed to God and it is praise to God Debbie you also had your hand up especially talked about we will be satisfied with
1: the goodness of my
0: house okay verses verses 1 through 4 describe coming to God uh, in praise and prayer as we've stated, but in particular, I think coming to the temple because, you know, he states that in verse uh, 4, a reference to your house. Again, so many of these references in the Psalms to worship, we worship individually when we sing and when we pray or when we're with our family reading the word, but, but also Worship is what we do when we're together. There's something important about that, as we stressed a couple of Sunday nights ago. And that is important. I'll tell you one thing that struck me, if anyone, no one else has an idea. Okay, that's a very good point. Begins in silence, ends with shouting. Uh, good point. Uh, the universe, the universal nature of the psalm. In this sense, look at verse two: Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men come. All men come." God is the God of Israel, but what God is doing with Israel is a lesson to all to come to Him. In verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of of our salvation, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth. And on the further sea, verse 2 and verse 5, express that universal uh the fact that all will acknowledge him. In verse 8, they who dwell, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. So so all the world will stand in awe of God. But but if there are more specifics, you can feel free to point them out as we go through. Let's look at verse 1, because what we see right away is different in some of your versions. And Christy pointed out something that may not be true in your version. She says it begins with silence. Uh, the, the heading for the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. There will be silence before you is the first line of the New American Standard Bible. What is the first line in some other versions there? Praise is awaiting you, and that Gary is what the
1: new, uh, new uh, King
0: James. New King James. NIV, does. NIV has that basic reading. The ESV, what does it have? Praise, praises do you? Quite, it's quite different, isn't it? I, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to go in detail as to all the reasons, and in some of them I don't grasp well myself, okay? But the basic idea, this word in verse 1 translated silence, this is based, the translations that follow that give priority to the Hebrew text. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament. The other versions, which talk about how did you say the EMT went through, because this is basic to say it's N-I-D and it, NIV, Praise, praise is do you that that is based on ancient translations, the oldest translations that they have of the Old Testament, the manuscripts of the Septuagint, the Greek translation. There's some other versions, well, they basically had this idea that praises you. So so it's a question, which do you follow more closely? Uh, Last year, at about this time, I was teaching high school class with Josh Sater. And there were a variety of topics that came up. And uh, one of them was textual criticism which is not an exciting subject and how do you teach that to teenagers? But I wanna tell you, going back over that information strengthened my faith in the text. It didn't weaken it. To just see the abundance of evidence that those who study these things have to work with is overwhelming. The reason there aren't as many other contradictions in other books when you just have one or two copies of them, no. You don't have any contradictions. But when you've got all kinds of copies, you know, from all different times, you're going to have some discrepancies. Sometimes I may present that in a lesson, but but it really was faith-affirming. And I think, by God's mercy, I was able to present some of that in a very simple way. A very simple way and but I just want you to know a reason for that difference but but the translate I'm going to comment more on the new American standard translation because that is something that is not common to us if we say praise is do you that's a statement that we would expect in the Psalms how is science praise and this was this was a series of comments. One writer said that silence is praise means after all these laments from Psalm 51 to Psalm 64 there's nothing to lament in this psalm and that's the kind of thing that John was saying earlier. It may be one writer said it may be that sometimes the height of worship is to fall silent before God in all of his presence and at submission to his will. Have you ever had moments where you've been so stunned and awed you literally had nothing to say? And maybe that's what this is picturing. That in the presence of God, he's so overwhelming, he's so blessed, he's silent before him, not having words to adequately express God's glory. There'll be silence before you and praise in Zion. To you the vow will be performed. And there's been quite a bit in recent Psalms about fulfilling vows. In Psalm 56 in verse 12, your vows are binding upon me. Oh God, I will render thank offerings to you. In Psalm 61 verse 8 Uh, I will pay my vows day by day. But here he promises to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Isn't that an interesting description of God? God is one who hears prayer. The prophets of Baal were crying out from morning to noon. When they were mocked by Elijah, they cut themselves and continued to cry out. But Baal does not hear. In contrast, we serve a God who hears prayer and all men will ultimately come to him. And in some point in their life, call to him. In verse 3, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive me. Now, verse 3. The word prevail in the New American Standard Bible. The word prevail. It's used as a verb. Iniquities prevail against me. But it is the same word in verse 6. It is translated to nail the word Might at the end of verse 6. Being girded, God is described as being girded with might. But this this word often refers to a mighty man of war. But the the way that, that, that I emphasize today, it is used to describe God's might, but as a verb, it describes sin prevailing over us. Sin was strong, sin was powerful. And sin defeated him. Sin defeated him. Iniquities prevail against me. But it says, you forgive them. And the term you, in verse 3, is defiant. The personal pronoun is stated. It's like, you You forgive them. Iniquities have won the battle. They have defeated me. But you bring forgiveness. And in a sin, we have all lived that verse. Our iniquities have conquered us. Iniquities have conquered us. And God has forgiven us. God in his mercy and grace And in verse 4, how blessed is the one whom you chose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts, and will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. God chose, in verse 4, the one you chose, the one you brought near. Now, This kind of language is used frequently in Numbers 16 through 18. Remember, all of the tribes produced a rod and they all put them in the house of the Lord. And the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, their rod budded and bore almonds. And God was demonstrating who He had chosen, the one He had chosen, and the one that He had chosen to bring near to Himself. It is a privilege... For man to be brought near in God's presence to serve him in a special way. How blessed is the one you chose to bring near to dwell in your courts. What a grand privilege to think of being the presence of God. You remember the book of Esther. When Esther is told to go and plead for her people. Esther said, it's been 30 days since the king has called for me. And if anyone goes into the king's presence uninvited, consequences are death." Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of a steep penalty to me. (laughs) To just go into the king's presence uninvited and to be executed. But that highlights how if you live in these nations with these powerful kings, you don't just casually approach the king. You don't just wander into his presence. It is a grand privilege to see his face. Never lose that thought with God. It is a grand privilege to be in his presence and to worship How blessed is the one whom you chose to bring near to yourself to dwell in your courts and will be satisfied with the goodness of your house in your holy temple. Some have suggested that perhaps the end of verse 4 refers to the fact that when the people brought their peace offerings... That the people were allowed to eat a portion of those peace offerings in Leviticus 3. And that way those who worshipped at God's house were satisfied with his goodness. That's a thought that's interesting. May have something to it. What what else do you see on 1 through 4? Any, any thoughts? Any ideas there? Bob, you look... Yes. Yeah. Powerful verse. Exactly. Yes. One who—it's a—it's a a sense of awe at being in the presence of God. Brad.
2: It just reminded me of Romans three twenty-three. You know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, we are just not peers of God. God walked in this room. We are all going. I am not worthy. Yes. I, I yes. am a sinner. There is no equality between me and God. And it just shows um, yeah. my inferiority uh, between a, a spiritual being.
0: We're always in a position of a beggar in his presence. And the thing is, he welcomes us graciously anyway. I mean, that, that's, I, we, but we can't lose, it's, it's a good idea. The thought we can't lose our sense of awe that we deserve to be in his presence. Or he, In his mercy and compassion, you, you forgive sins. And that alone shows us how awesome he is, as verses 5 through 8 will emphasize. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness... O God of our salvation, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth and the furthest of seas. Now, the idea of the ends of the earth in Psalm 59, 13. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Psalm 61 verse 2, from the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And I like Psalm 67 verse 7, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth might fear him. He blesses us to lead us to fear of him So in verse 5 again, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You are the trust of all the end of the earth and of the furtherest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the people. God establishes the mountains by his strength. Think about it just a moment. When the Bible mentions mountains, what is it often a picture of? Strength and stability. Yeah, strength and stability. You know, they are about as permanent as. Anything on this earth. You don't begin uh, to build an interstate right through uh, a huge mountain. The mountains are pictures of strength, of stability. They are in creation what is most stable. And it seems like to me, In this passage, that verse 6 is speaking of the mountains as a source of stability, as an evidence of his strength, just as a picture of the even greater strength, the might of God. Anything that we see on the earth as a picture of his strength or stability is inadequate to describe God in all of his glory. But God is pictured as being girded, with might. He's pictured as being girded with strength. The same kind of picture appears in Psalm 93 in verse 1. 93, verse 1. O Lord, the, the Lord reigns, he's clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. He's clothed and girded himself. With strength. God is girded with strength. And in Psalm 18, in a couple of verses, verse 32 and 39, God spoke of girding David with strength. We, God Himself, is girded with strength, and therefore, he girds his servants with strength. Psalm 18 verse 32 and verse 39. He establishes the mountains. The mountains are a picture of the strength and the stability of God. A, a, a small glimpse of that. And God steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the people. Um... God quiets the storm. We're going to see other pictures of that in the Psalms. But, but just listen to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 9. It says, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. We see that same kind of picture other places. But God quiets the roaring of the seas and the waves. And he quiets the contentions and the tumult of nations. In verse 8, they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your sign. So he mentions the ends of the earth just like you get in verse 5 of the earth is in italics. Not in the original, but it's the idea. Those who dwell in the ends stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. The dawn and the sunset. That might be a way of saying from east to west. Seems like it to me. Um, Dawn to sunset, but 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 the point is, all people in all places standing off him. It may be particularly invoking the mountains. It may be particularly invoking the seas and the sun as evidences of his glory. What thoughts do you have there, John? In
1: uh, verse five, you. You are the trust of all the ends
0: of the earth. Some versions use the word hope. You yes. are the hope. hope. I saw yes. the word confidence
1: also might fit there, but I don't know. A little, maybe think differently.
0: Yes, yes, and and of course God is ultimately um, both uh, of these, but but um, the the word is is a Part of a simple form of a word that's generally translated trust but yes several versions do have hope right right there and it, and there may be other places where it means hope too it's generally translated trust but but it may mean may mean hope anybody, anybody else have a thought right on that that translation in verse 5 or your translation Sheds any light on that?
1: New King James has confidence.
0: Confidence. Closer, a little closer to the trust. Any other thoughts there? I, I've always loved verses 9 through 13. And it is the part of the psalm uh, that I think of most readily. When I think of Psalm um, sixty. Um, 65 you visit the earth and calls it to overflow you greatly enrich it, the stream of God this is describing a, a rainfall an abundant harvest and Ultimately, it will come down to both an abundant harvest and the fields are full of flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. And God is behind every step of this, isn't it? Now, to whom did many in Israel, they shouldn't have, but they did, to whom did they attribute fruitful seasons? Baal, yeah, Baal. Um, They believe that Baal was the one who provided them with her grain and her new wine and her oil. You see that particularly in the book of Hosea. Do you remember when Elijah, and, and, and we probably talked about this before, and so if I have, I don't mean to wear you out with it, but at the same time, something I've learned in years of being a preacher, a parent, and also a college teacher, is not everybody gets your message the first time. <laughs> Just something I picked up. Uh, but it all walks a lot. Uh, but in First Kings 17, when Elijah comes to Ahab and says, there's not going to be any dew nor any rain Till I say so. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say no dew, no rain? Well, Baal worship had basically become the national religion. You remember how uh, he built a temple of Baal and an altar of Baal in First Kings sixteen, and he was devoting. He had he had four hundred prophets of Baal and four. Uh, 450 prophets of Baal who ate at the king's table. As Baal is becoming national religion and they believe Baal provides the rain, the, Elijah says no, this is what the Lord says, this is what Yahweh says that there will be no dew nor rain till I say so. And so really this is a contest. Who controls the rain? Is it, uh, is it Elijah's God, the Lord, or is it uh, Ahab's God, Baal? For three and a half years, there is no rain, there is no dew. no rain, no dew. Things look desperate. Uh, drought is uh, all around them, uh, and, and many are dying because of their lack of uh, lack of rain. But God is showing that He controls the rain. And after the nation says, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In that contest in 1 Kings 18, Elijah prays. And and there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And ultimately, it becomes a great downpour. God is showing that he controls the the weather. That he consents the rain. And it is not Baal. And here in Psalm 65, you see God is behind every step. Of this blessing. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. A farmer, a good farmer, doesn't just go out there in March, or February, or whenever it is, and throw out his seed. There are all kinds of things that he does to prepare that land to produce. God is the preeminent farmer. And there are all kinds of things that he's doing to cause the land to be productive in verse 10, you bless its growth, you soften it with showers, you bless its growth. In verse 11, you you've crowned the year with your bounty. You crowned the year with your, your bounty. And, and this is basically the word for good that's used in verse 4. Verse 4 spoke of the goodness of God's house. This speaks of the good of the fields that are a blessing from him. You've crowned the year with your bounty, with your goodness. Your pies drip fatness. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London in the late 1800s, and he wrote on the Psalms, The Treasury of David. Um, Here he makes a comment that is really fascinating. Most kings, when they went places in the ancient world, wherever they went, that area suffered. Because the king and all those with him got the best of everything. And those who were in that area were often deprived. The king got the best at their expense. But not with this king. For wherever this king goes, his paths drip fatness. And that thought was inspired by Spurgeon. The pastures drip. The pastures of the wilderness drip. The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. So the, the inanimate hills are pictured as shouting and rejoicing. The valleys are shouting. The meadows are clothed with full hawks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy, yes, they sing. Now, God has said in verse 10, you visit the earth. In verse 10, you water its furrows, you settle its ridges, you soften it, you bless it. In verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty, your paths. God is the one behind all these abundant harvest. Our problem today is not Baal worship. Our problem is not Baal worship. Our problem, well our problem is epitomized in a discussion I got into in the first grade where a person came up to me and said in first grade Mrs. Bruce's class, he said, what causes it to rain? And I said, God causes it to rain. He said, no, it's not. He said, this cloud meets that cloud and this and stuff. And it all comes together and it causes rain. Now... I was really upset that, first of all, because he went to church with me and he should have known better. He should have known that God is ultimately behind the rain. But I want to tell you, there was a period over my life, even always being a strong believer in God, there was a period over the next few years where I thought, "What? Oh, my answer was simplistic, wasn't it? But then as I kept reading in the Bible about God's control of weather, I thought my answer was exactly right. Just because we can describe a lot of the processes of nature that cause rain does not eliminate God as the ultimate cause. I think I have shared with some of you before um, a quotation from John Lennox who Uh, John Lennox is a math teacher at Oxford in England, but a strong believer in God and goes around the world speaking on the existence of God. And he said to say that because we figured these things out by science, God is unnecessary. He said to say that is like saying, well, I can figure out how an engine works and I can take it apart put it together. And that makes Henry Ford unnecessary. <laughs> Henry Ford, you know, there was no Henry Ford who started all this. And it, you see, the fact that there was, that we can explain the process doesn't deny who Started that process and and who founded that engine, or in God's case, continues to do that in our world. Lest not our danger is secularism and just thinking we can explain these things and there's no need of God and how foolish that is. Now, what thoughts do you have on verses 9 through 13? Uh Anne-Marie. Okay, the same God who causes the rain to fall and the grain to grow, the valleys covered with grain and the mountains um, covered with the meadows covered with flocks is the same God in verse 3 who forgives sin. And he meets our deepest spiritual need as well. And so, yes, the same God who provides us with our daily food is also the one that Jesus prayed, "Give us this day our daily food." Is also the one you pray, uh, "Forgive us of our of our debts, as we forgive those indebted to us." God can meet both those physical needs and spiritual needs, and ultimately, one writer said, "One of the main points of the psalm is He meets all our needs." What else? Anything else? Okay. To me, this next part did not come as easily as it does sometimes. <laughs> oh, there is a passage I wanted to mention to you that I, I haven't. I love the passage. It goes with this last section. In Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, in particular, emphasis on verse 17. But this is where Paul heals the crippled man at Lystra. And they're about to do sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they're God. And Paul says, Paul and Barnabas start to tear their clothes. We're men of like passions with you. We teach you to turn from this foolishness to the living God. And it says, God did not leave himself without witness. But gave you grain and food, and somebody's there, you might read it better than that, and filled your hearts with food and glass. Johnny, um. John, you have the opening? Because you look like you were uh, Acts 14, 17.
1: How did say? And, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and glass.
0: Okay. And the point that Paul's making is God didn't leave you without witness to himself. This, this process in nature where people eat and are satisfied, it ought to be something that turns people's hearts toward the God who is the source of all blessing. Uh, like Psalm 67 verse 7 said, we read this earlier, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. But I love that passage. In Acts, Acts 14, 17. Now, this did not come as easily to me as some chapters do, but how does Jesus fulfill Psalm 65? How does he fulfill Psalm 65? And Marie? Okay. Good point. It's not one that I had down to. Especially like your point. See, so he, he, he says God provides the rain and provides the water. So Jesus describes himself basically as the living water. That's not an I am statement in the Gospel of John. But it's the same kind of idea uh, I uh, where he speaks of how he is the water that divides uh, that you drink of you will never thirst again John 6.35 I am the bread of life he who believes in me will not hunger and he who comes to me will not thirst thirst is connected with that as well so he is the um, John 7.37-39 the one who believes in me out of him will come rivers of living water so so yes that, that is a good that is a good thought what
1: else?
0: Okay, and you're particularly connecting that with? Okay. In Zion, okay. Uh, praise awaiting you in Zion. In one, uh, particularly verse 1, that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And they celebrate him. Ah, go, go ahead, Marie. Yeah. You, you get. Okay. Now, I want to have a disclaimer right here. Disclaimer is this is not the same Greek word that's used, but 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 Amory mentions he's girded with might. I want you to think about that. Um, this is John thirteen. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into His hand, that He had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside His garments, and taking a towel, He girded Himself. That's John fourteen, verses. Excuse me, John thirteen, John thirteen, verses three and four. And the reason he girds himself with a towel is to wash the disciples' feet. Now, like I said, there is a disclaimer because the same word used in the main Greek translation of the Old Testament is not the word used in John 13, verse 14. But I want you to think about that just a moment. There's obviously, it's the same kind of idea, though. The one who is girded with might. Girded himself with a tie to watch the disciples? The statements made by D.A. Carson in his commentary on the Gospel of John. We do not have even one other example in all of Greek and Roman literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Not one other example do we have. Remember John the Baptist said I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals. of." One of the lowest things could happen to a person is to, to wash someone's feet. And Jesus does that to his disciples including Judas. Who's going to betray Him? The one who was girded with might, who fits the descriptions the Psalms give us of God, girds himself with a towel. Now, let me not assume that point. The one who girded... I said he assumed... Jesus fulfills the picture. Jesus fulfills the picture of God in Psalm 65. Now let me back that up. Mark two, verses one through twelve. Jesus is teaching one day at a home. The crowd, the place is packed. People are everywhere. There's no room to get to Jesus, to the door, but there have been four men who have carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus and they climb up on the house and they dig through the roof and they let down their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus' answer may have surprised everybody in the crowd and may have surprised the man himself. Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And what was the question? The scribes and Pharisees
1: asked. Who is this that has the power to forgive
0: sins? Yeah. yeah. only, Who is this? Only God can forgive sins. I, Gary's paraphrasing it, I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not, but, but you get the idea. It's pretty accurate paraphrase. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's not the only time that that question was asked in regard to Jesus. Remember the woman that washed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears and was drying them with her hair. And Jesus said to her at the end in Luke 7 verse 48, Your sins have been forgiven. But those who were there said, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Luke 7. It's Luke 7 verses 48 and 49. Who is this who even forgives sins? They knew, like we stated before in verse 3, that you is used emphatically. You, God, forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. This word for forgiveness is only used three times in the Psalms. And every time it is stressed that God forgives sins. And Jesus comes and says, your sins are forgiven. Who is this man who forgives sins? See the answer to that question. He is God coming to flesh. And I'll tell you something else Why he fulfills the picture of God. He fulfills the picture of God in verse 7. God is pictured as stealing. He steals the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. This was 65.3. The verse we're connecting with that. And this is 65.7. He steals the roaring of the seas. Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. A furious storm arises on the Sea of Galilee. It must have been terrible. Because some of the disciples are very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Four of them were fishermen and made their living on that sea. And yet they are afraid. They're terrified. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The only time in the Gospels Jesus is ever pictured as asleep. He is sleeping in the midst of this violent storm. And they wake him up and say, Lord, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus gets up and says, Hush, be still. But don't have me certified when I tell you that. Okay? But just try to be filled. I have looked out sometimes when there has been a violent storm and the rain pounded and it's coming down in sheets, like people say. And I just tried to say, be still. Now, I wasn't expecting it to stop, but I was trying to get a feel of what it would have been like to be a disciple and to experience that and to think about nature obeying Jesus' command at the end of this account in Mark 4 they ask who is this that even the winds and waves obey him Jesus fulfills the picture of God in Psalm 65 and the fact that he does fulfill that picture of God makes the point we made in verse 6, more 3. That the one who is girded with might girded himself with a towel to wash the feet of the disciples. Even the feet of one who would kill him or would betray him. Who can reject this God? Who can turn Him away? That is amazing. Any other thoughts or ideas that you'll have, Mary?
1: Um, verse four caused men to draw to Him. Uh, John twelve. And he says He'll be lifted up and cause all men. draw all men
0: to him. Okay, okay. The one you choose, you're saying, are you talking about that phrase in verse four or verse?
1: Yeah, the man you choose okay. and cause to draw near or to approach you.
0: Okay. I also thought of that, Mary, is the priesthood. Uh, Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews. God has chosen him and drawn him near. It's a prerog- God's prerogative to choose the high priest. The high priest doesn't run for election. Uh, God chooses him. And God chooses Jesus to bring near to him. Um, so, but yes, that's a good point. And Jesus is also the temple where God and man meet in verse 4. As I think about this, and, and you all gave some suggestions that I did not have. I'm thinking, why was I saying that was a difficult <laughs> connection to make? Uh, but you all did make some connections uh, that I didn't. And and, and like you, and, and like Mary said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's John twelve thirty two and thirty three. And men are drawn to God through Jesus, and through Jesus, God becomes the God of our salvation. Is verse five says.
1: Brand.
2: I was intrigued by that uh, verse 8, you know, those who dwell in the ends of the earth shall stand in all thy signs. I thought of, you know, Genesis 12, you know, the fulfillment of mm-hmm. all nations. It's not just those in Zion, verse yes. 1, but it is the remotest people um, as far away as you can get. They're still
1: reaping the blessings of the
0: well. Absolutely. And of course, Jesus said, go therefore and teach all nations. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. What he, done, what he did and his power and signs, that message has gone forth into all the world. And, um, and the temple, uh, the picture, like the temple is mentioned at first in verses 1 through 4. Uh, in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established at the top of the mountains and all nations will flow into it. You know, God's intention has always been to save and bless all people. And it goes, the promises to Abraham, we can see that, you know, clearly.
1: I I, I just see this
2: idea of of completeness in God God's song. Uh, Everything that he has a relationship with, he is what completes it. And I couldn't help but
0: think of Colossians 2.10. We're complete in Jesus, yes. in Christ. Yeah. God, and it's kind of like we said to Anne-Marie's question earlier. He's provided us with all we need physically and spiritually. We are complete in Christ. In Christ, we have all we need. Um, uh, we, you know, there, there are a lot of things that we can learn in our world. And if knowledge is, partic- is properly funneled, it all leads us to a deeper understanding of God. Leads us to our, our knowledge of the natural world and science, our knowledge of other things, all lead us to Him. But ultimately, He, in Christ, we're complete. We don't need anything
1: else. I really... That connection between silence and praise in verse one, and yeah. kind of that being awestruck. Yeah. You, you just you have nothing to say, and though Peter had words to say, he really had nothing to say when Jesus told him to cast his nets, and the haul of fish was so yeah. great. Then his response in Luke 5 was, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And the next verse says, For amazement had seized him and his companions. Yeah.
0: He, he's awed, and <laughs> he knows he doesn't belong in his presence. You know, depart from me. And it's interesting, when some regions told Jesus to depart, they quickly obeyed when Peter says, "Lord, depart," he said, "No. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. But to be disciples, and that was and that was their call to full-time discipleship, I believe. And to be disciples, we have to have a sense of our own sin and a sense of our unworthiness before him. And just be dumbfounded that he can love and save even us.
1: on his own. Yeah. Jesus asked him to do and then he succeeds. Mm
2: hmm.
0: Yes, it it does. It does, and um, but God is amazing, and we need to. The more we know about Him, the more we do stand in awe of Him and His provision for us. Anybody else have anything there? the language of psalm 23 our cup is running over and uh, yes absolutely but thank you guys so much and uh, bobby would you want to lead us in prayer and then brad will you, you get a song brad or? okay brad will lead us in song
2: May we all be convicted every time we read your word to share with someone who does not know. Heavenly Father we pray for Gary and...
0: I left that recorder only Who's remembered to cut it off. All right. All
2: um. right. back here, we'll sing uh, all the way through these. So No <clears throat>
3: <coughs> mm, oh soul Praise waits for the in Zion To the Thou's pain shall be Prevailing all the may, but all of our transgressions are covered o'er by thee. How blessed the man thou choose us, and bring us dear to thee that in thy courts forever his dwelling place shall be. We shall within thy temple be wholly satisfied, all filled with all the goodness thy saints provide, O God of our salvation, thou in thy righteousness with awesome deeds and wonders, thine answer wilt express, O People who are sailing upon the far the
2: sea and then finally the last three verses stand up stand up for Jesus
3: <coughs> no soul Thy might has built the mountains power evermore to calm the nation's clamor and still the ocean roar. Thine awesome signs and wonders filled on. Bands with fear, thou makest stone and sun set for joy to shout and cheer. Thy visits bring spring the sham was shout, doth enrich the field. God's river brims with water. Thou dost prepare us, yield. Thou water us, for us. clouds break down neath thy rain. Thou soften earth with showers to bless each frowning rain. Goodness, thy steps in ricks are run, the desert pastures blossom, the hills with joy resound, the fields with flocks are come. Oh,